chapter 4, Sunday morning, studying the book of Colossians in a series entitled, uh, Give Me Jesus. And uh, as we're turning to that place, just want to remind you that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently studying the gospel according to Luke, which we will be, I will personally be very happy to rejoin tonight. And as Pastor Paul mentioned, we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper this evening. Maybe it's been a long time since you've studied the gospel according to Luke or had the Lord's Supper. So it'd be nice to come out tonight and uh, join us for that. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, and let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let's pray together. Jesus, you told us that Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but your word is never going to pass away. And really um, sobering and stunning and astonishing in the best sense of the word to realize that these verses that we have read are going to be more permanent than anything that we see both on this earth and in the heavens. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to your word this morning and to receive your instruction, instruction that is timeless, that never fails us, that never leaves anyone ashamed. And Jesus, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each of us individually, speak to us as a church from these verses. We have come to worship you. We have come to be conformed into your image. And we pray that you would use your word now to accomplish that. And we pray it in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. With these verses, the Apostle Paul closes the formal section of his letter to the church at Colossae. And he closes it with three encouragements, and it's probably a little stronger than encouragements, three exhortations to them concerning how we are to engage the non-Christian world uh, around us and, uh, and the people that don't know the Lord yet that are around us. He refers to them in the passage as those who are outside, that is outside of the kingdom of God, outside of the family of God, and not yet having trusted in Christ for salvation. Now, I don't know how you read something like this at this point in time in our study of the book of Colossians, but on the surface it might seem odd that the apostle would end the letter that he wrote in order to correct the false teaching and the false teachers who were prevalent in their influence in the church uh, at, at Corinth and it had infiltrated it on this kind of a note by reminding the church at Colossae of its responsibility to the outside world its responsibility to the unsaved world, its responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission in Colossae as Jesus has called the church to do, to go into all of the world 
and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that Jesus taught and all the things that he modeled for us. But it really isn't an odd way to end a letter like this at all, because if we lose sight of the lost world around us as Christians, and if we lose sight of the Great Commission that's been entrusted uh, to us, whether as a church or whether we do that individually, very unhealthy things have a wide way of then coming into our lives that would never otherwise enter into our lives, either corporately or individually, if that time was spent as God intended, the time that is intended to be spent on reaching the world for Christ and bringing the gospel to the unsaved uh, world, and if we stayed focused on that. In other words, if we lose sight of the need of the world around us, then a church turns inward in our Christian life as a result in opposition to having an outward dynamic to our Christian life as well. And so the church can become a bless me club. It's a place where I don't really care what's happening out there. I don't care what people are doing out there. I just want to go to church in order that it would bless me and encourage me. And I'm not really so concerned about it equipping me to be an influence for God in the world uh, around me. I have no real interest uh, in that. Or if we lose sight of the need of the world around us and we do turn inward, then a church will begin typically to cannibalize itself. Because again, time that should be spent constructively in the Great Commission, now that will be time on our hands. And so there will be the tendency for everyone to become focused on the imperfections of other people, everyone fighting one another, picking uh, at one another, petty arguments, uh, as the old kind of saying goes among Christians in a local church over the color of the hymnals or the color uh, of the carpets, and really just general carnality will ultimately come to be dominant. Or is the case related to the church here uh, at Colossae, as they have lost sight of the need of the world around them, that so often what happens then is the introduction into that church of false doctrine. Because where sound doctrine is no longer enough for people, not because it isn't enough, but because the clear teachings of the Bible are not now being taken out into the nitty-gritty and the messiness and the extraordinary need of the world uh, around us and, uh, and in order that it would make a powerful difference in the lives of the lost. And instead, when people no longer learn the Bible or read the Bible with that kind of a focus, that kind of an intent, then we begin to search for novel or exotic teachings in order to keep ourselves amused or to keep ourselves engaged in the study uh, of the Bible and in the Christian life. Sometimes I'll hear a Christian, I've heard him over the years, 
say the same thing a lot of different ways, but they'll say something like this, as the world gets messier and messier, someone will say, I wish we had a Christian island that we could all go to where everyone would be a Christian. That uh, thought uh, has, has no appeal to me uh, at all, zero. In fact, I would be frightened at, 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 at such a possibility at, at this point in time in church history. And uh, not because I don't love fellowship and that I, I don't love Christians, but because presently, one day it won't be true, but presently we are still fallen creatures and fallen people, even as, as Christians. And uh, even in this environment that we think would be so pristine, it would, it would be so uh, trouble-free, as a result of the flesh, we would get into trouble uh, almost immediately, fighting with one another, arguing with one another, dividing with one another. It reminds me of an old joke <clears throat> that I heard a lot of years ago about a man who was stranded alone on a deserted island. He was stranded there for a number of years, <clears throat> until a, a rescue boat found him. And then when the rescuers got off of the boat, they came to the island, they were astonished at these three beautiful structures that he had uh, built there upon the island out of the resources that were available, the leaves and the bamboo. And um, <clears throat> they asked the man what the first structure was, and he answered, well, that's my house. And they asked him about the second structure, and he said, well, that's where I go to church. They asked him about the third structure, and a scowl came over his face as he told his rescuers, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> you don't even need to have other Christians to fight with. We'll fight with ourselves because there's fight in us. And if we, if we lose sight of having that outward focus, we will literally cannibalize one another in the body of, of Christ. One day we're going to be in heaven all together, and it'll be great. But we'll have a new body then, and in a perfect environment. There won't be any flesh there. Our corruption will have put on incorruption, and there it will be a wonderful thing. But between here and there, I don't think it would be so great at all. And so presently, not only is the world in desperate need of the truth we carry, in desperate need of us being salt and light, by the Holy Spirit in the world. But we also have a great need for this world. And a great need for this world, despite all of its corruption, despite all of its fallenness, despite all of its neediness, despite all of its messiness, and to stay busy about the great commission that God has called us to. It is good for the world and it is also very good for us as Christians. Paul begins a series of exhortations with a call, you notice, in verses 2 through 4 to pray. And prayer is a very, very simple activity. It is a marvelous activity. I mean, it is an awe-inspiring activity to be able to talk uh, with God, but it is still a very, very simple activity. And it is simply talking to God. Where I talk and God listens, where God talks and then I listen. 
And as Christians, we have a relationship with God, and no relationship in any level is any greater than the frequency and the intimacy of the communication that happens between the two people that are in the relationship. And so the same thing is true related to our relationship with God. And praying doesn't mean learning the King James English or some fancy way of speaking. It's just talking to God about everything. Everything in the same way that you would talk to anybody else in the world or any other uh, friend in the world with the same uh, naturalness, the same transparency, the same openness in, in, uh, in, in our uh, lives. And it's good to be reminded that God likes us, He loves us, He wants a relationship with us, and when we come to Him in prayer, He is not at all interested in us coming to Him in some kind of complicated way by uh, trying to appear to be something other than what we are or someone other than what we are. He likes us. He saved us. He wants an individual relationship with us. And so uh, just as we came freely to the Lord when we became a Christian, Now as we approach him in prayer, we're free to come just as we are as well. And I I say this so that prayer doesn't become some kind of a a complicated, uh, intimidating thing in any of our minds that will then become something that deters us from praying. I don't know how to pray or um, and mo- most often a person, when they say, I don't know how to pray, it's, they're saying, I don't know how to pray like other people I've heard pray. No one can say, I don't know how to pray uh, based upon how God calls us to pray in the scriptures, to so just come and talk with, with, with him. I remember many, many years ago, a friend <clears throat> was a pastor and, and he shared about an experience that uh, he had, and, and uh, he, as he was pastoring the church, a group went out to evangelize the town center of the city that he lived in. And so they headed out and handed out gospel tracts and shared with people and entered into spiritual conversations with them. And they had prearranged that they would come back to a certain place and then uh, pray for everyone that they had talked to and, and God's truth as it had gone forth. And so they came back together to do exactly that. And they took hands, as Christians do, and they began to pray, pre-COVID, of course, and uh, they began to pray, and it began to, the prayer began to go around in the circle, and it began to go one person right after another, rather than like a pong game going like this. And so when it starts to go like that with Christians, you know, you're kind of on the spot to pray. It'll be noticed if you don't. Well, there was, as they were making their way around, uh, uh, around uh, the circle, it came to a new Christian who had joined them for street witnessing, and prayer was very new to him. And so he, he, he proceeded to pray uh, a very halting prayer, a very unprofessional prayer. And, uh, and uh, the pastor, he said as he stood there holding hands with everyone, he felt just so embarrassed for the, for the man. And later he was talking with the Lord about it. And he said, gosh, Lord, he, he didn't even know how to pray. He said, the Lord spoke right to his heart and said, Bob, he's the only one who did pray to me in, in this situation. And it's easy to become professionals. We should all become better at anything we practice, including prayer. 
And, um, but when I say professional praying, professional praying is like the Pharisees where my greatest concern is not with God as the audience, but the people who are, I'm praying with uh, and them hearing my prayer. All God wants from a prayer is for me to just simply communicate what I'm supposed to want to say to him and then to, to do it um, without, any, without any kind of um, uh, uh, pretense or any pretending or anything uh, like that, to be able to do that with that, that kind of openness, to pray and be just who we are. Now, having said that, it is important to say that a prayer life is not an optional uh, for a Christian. It is vital. It's necessary. That's why Paul is talking about it here. And, and uh, no one knew uh, how important a prayer life was for a Christian probably in church history uh, more than the Apostle Paul uh, did himself. And so he uh, enjoyed a rich, mature prayer life. And now here in this passage, he's advocating the same thing for us. You notice in verse 2, Paul tells us that our prayers and our prayer life are to be marked by uh, continuing earnestly, as he puts it there. That is, we're to devote ourselves to uh, prayer, and uh, we're to persist in it. We're never to cease uh, praying. It's not to be uh, a hit-or-miss activity within any of our lives as Christians. or something that we just practice kind of uh, haphazardly as Uh, as some kind of a disaster would occur in our life. And so there's a place for prayer within our lives where it happens at set times in our lives, uh, in our day, and it is a disciplined part of our lives. We see this in in the Old Testament in the prophet Daniel, where Daniel uh, had his set times of prayer uh, with the Lord, and they were so consistent that uh, those that were jealous of him in the ruling class there within uh, that empire, they used it as a means to try and, and trap him. And yet even with that attempt to trap him, even with his life in danger, he continued to maintain a disciplined set times of prayer within his life. But additionally, there is uh, prayer... Uh, as Paul is advocating it here, is something that happens throughout the day. And when he talks about uh, continuing earnestly in prayer, he doesn't mean that every Christian you'd be able to identify us everywhere we go, where we walk into the tire shop or a grocery store or into any kind of an office or whatever, and the Christians are always muttering a prayer uh, just under their breath. That's not what he's talking about here. And it, but it, it is, he's saying that our prayers to God are to be as natural as breathing. In other words, when we begin the day in prayer, that that conversation in prayer then continues throughout the day. That we just begin, we talk with him about anything and everything uh, that would be happening to us. The conversation uh, is open as we're just kind of uh, processing life all around us. There's this internal conversation that's happening between us and God. Maybe you've been on one of the roads in Modesto or on a freeway or something, and you see somebody do something kind of crazy, and you say, "Uh, Lord, would you look at that? And uh, he's good company for that. And you just process life with a thing. 
uh, somebody's in some kind of a, a, a trouble in a situation of some kind. Lord, what do you want me to do here? You want me to use me in this, this situation? Or Lord, did you see that? Or uh, whatever it might be. And just talking with the Lord about, about life as we're seeing it. You watch the news or you're, uh, you know, impacted by the news or whatever it might be in processing what people are going through individually or on a national or worldwide level. And to just say, excuse me, Lord, how do you want me to process that? How do you want me to see that? How do you see that? And the conversation is just so free and it's so present and it's so real, like you would talk with another person and the Lord uh, loves that. We certainly see this in a, a, another man in the Old Testament by the name of Nehemiah when he was the cupbearer for the king at the time. And uh, one of the things about being a cupbearer for a king in those days was that you never showed up to work, so to speak, uh, with a frown. Or, I mean, everybody had to be smiles and happy uh, around the king because if you showed up sad or anything, he would consider it to be a reflection of his reign, that, that you, were, uh, you uh, saw something wrong with it. So everybody went to great effort. But the news that uh, Nehemiah received that Jerusalem was in ruins and the mess that it was, it so broke his heart that knowing the protocol, the king was still able to notice that he was... Uh, he was not himself. And he talked to Nehemiah about it. Nehemiah told him about why his heart was broken. And then the king said to Nehemiah, what do you request? And Nehemiah, in this vein related to prayer, wrote, and so I prayed to the God of heaven. Was it a planned prayer or anything? It was, here's a circumstance that I'm in. Lord, what do you want me to do here in this situation? He talks about being vigilant in prayer. That is to be watchful in prayer, alert in prayer, mentally alert. He's not talking about not falling asleep while we pray. He's talking about watching the circumstances of our individual life, watching the circumstances of the world around us and and, uh, the life of the world uh, 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 all around us, and then engaging in these circumstances through prayer. So engaging spiritual warfare that we might see, um, in, uh, engaging, Lord, again, what do you want me to do here? How should I see this? How should I process this? Or to see the condition of the world and to say, Lord, this certainly tells me that your return is very, very near. But, but we're in tune with the world. We don't have to separate from it in an, in an artificial kind of way. We're vigilant. We're, we're aware of what, what's going on. We're not in the, the turnip patch or the pumpkin patch. And, and it's very easy to be alert and watchful in our lives, especially with all of the media that we have today, very alert and watchful about everything that's going on in the world, and uh, then fail to pray about them. And we'll sink under the weight of that. If we don't process I'm convinced that no generation, no human being was ever meant to process the sheer amount of information, the sheer amount of what we know and learn on a daily basis as human beings, uh, never meant to be this on, to know this much. And if we know this much and are tapped in this way and we are processing it with the Lord, 
then we're going to uh, run into some real trouble. And then we're not going to, we, most likely, one of the things that will become a casualty of it is the Lord's heart for the world and his love for the world and his desire to have them saved. Because the tendency will be then to, I'm going to get razor wire and I'm going to buy as many guns as I can get permits for or whatever it might be and I'm going to separate and barricade away from it. If I don't process life with, with God, if I'm not being vigilant in that way. He says our prayer should contain thanksgiving as well. Remembering all of the things, no matter how difficult life is, whether again individually or worldwide, the things that are ours that can never be taken away from us. We're redeemed. We're saved. Uh, we have a relationship with God. We're forgiven of our sins. Heaven is at the end of this pilgrimage and this journey. But not just the big, huge, wonderful things that are ours because of Christ and because of our faith in Him, but the little things that happen in life, the little touches in life that make us uh, thankful. A sunrise fits into this category. Uh, rain fits in this category, especially if you're not having to work in it, and especially if you have a hot beverage in your hand and you're looking at it from the inside, uh, uh, on the other side of a window. But there's so many things that happen in life that are noticeable little blessings of God, little things that he shows us in the word or something that he brings to our mind at just the right time. And to notice this and to stay thankful in, in the midst of, uh, of our endeavor to reach the world for the Lord. And this casualty of thankfulness in our culture is way, way beyond uh, people no longer saying thank you for things. A lot of what is going on in the, in the, in the breakdown of things is an utter absence of thanksgiving. And uh, God wants to make sure that we don't find ourselves in that category as well. You notice too in verses 3 and 4 that Paul requested their intercession for him. One of the things that's fascinating to notice about the Apostle Paul in the Scriptures is that he wanted to be on every prayer list he knew. Every time he wrote a letter, he said, pray for me. Pray, and not, and not only pray for me, but pray about these specific things. He wanted people to be uh, interceding uh, for him. And one of the things is we see what Paul asked for prayer here, what he asked for for prayer and other areas of the Bible. I think that Paul's transparency is very, very uh, instructive in this regard. Because here he is, even though he's an apostle, and he might take great pressure upon himself to portray general perfection to all of the churches that he's writing these letters to. I'm not in need of any prayer, and uh, if something comes to mind someday, I'll send another letter uh, to you. And that can become the pressure. Not just leaders in the church feel, but Christians begin to, to, uh, to, to feel. But here he makes his needs, he makes his spiritual desires, he makes them known. And in order to do that, that requires tremendous humility on our part. In order to give people the information that they need to be able to be effective in terms of interceding specifically for us, we need to reveal something about ourselves in order for that to happen. And that involves risk. And yet, and Paul understood the risk. 
Not everybody liked the Apostle Paul. Not everybody stood with him. But the risk was worth it to him because he knew he couldn't be who he was without the intercession of God's people. And you notice as he speaks to us here about what he wanted them to pray for him in verse 3, that God would open to them a door for the word. An open door means an opportunity. And, and, uh, and so he's asking, would you pray and, uh, for uh, us to speak God's word and the gospel? He asked very specifically in the realm of, of evangelism here. Now, this is interesting to hear Paul talking about uh, an open door for the word or for the gospel. When you read the, uh, Paul in the gospels, it's, uh, we look at him and uh, we can conclude that the, the man that we read about in the scriptures is this is just who he was by nature, a strong, determined, bold, run through any wall kind of a man. And here we realize that the man that we read about in the scriptures was who he was because of people's intercession for him. And you look at the Apostle Paul and you would think this would be the last thing that the Apostle Paul would ask anyone for prayer related to his life because when you read about him in the book of Acts, it seems like he could take any situation and turn it around as an opportunity to share the gospel. And that Paul would would take and he would share the gospel with a telephone pole and convert it and lead it in the sinner's prayer. And, and yet here uh, you, you get this impression of him, but here Paul reveals to us, and again it's the transparency, that he was the man that we read about in the book of Acts, not on the basis of this sheer determination or sheer personality that he had, but as a result of what he recognized to be supernaturally open doors for him to share the truth of God as a result of, of the prayers of, of other people in, in his life. Now, I, I hesitate to say this, but I'll say it nonetheless. But when I hear statistics like we've heard recently, that 90% of all Christians in the United States will never share their faith one time in the course uh, of their uh, Christian life. Now, see, stop, stop and let that number just, just hit us. It's not five times. 90% of Christians in the United States of America will never share the gospel not one time in the course of their Christian lives. Now, that's a staggering departure from the Bible and, and from the book of Acts. And yet, and yet, I'll say what I'm going to say nonetheless. I, I don't think that this sensitivity to an open door and the Holy Spirit's leading is dealing uh, primarily or solely with that m- mass evangelism, as Paul is talking about it here, or with street witnessing. And both of those are important means by which to fulfill the Great Commission in the world that, that we live in. And, and we want to do all these different things as we're led by the Holy Spirit. But I think Paul is speaking about personal evangelism with those we're in regular contact with as well. In our families, in our neighborhoods, the relationships that we have in our schools, 
in our workplaces, among uh, our, our friends, and so forth. When Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossae, he's not engaged in street witnessing. He's not engaged in mass evangelism. He is incarcerated in a prison in Rome. And what he is doing is he is sharing the gospel with individuals, with Roman guards, uh, with visitors, uh, with other uh, 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 officials and fellow prisoners. Now, when I was a, a, a very new Christian, my excitement was so great. I mean, when the Holy Spirit came into my life and I was born again, I knew that had happened, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what had happened to me, I wanted to happen to everyone. And so I shared my testimony. I shared what God had done in my life. I shared the gospel, faith in Christ, uh, and, and how to be born again with everybody uh, that I knew. And it was great. I don't regret any of it at all. In some cases, uh, it allowed me to lead people to, to become Christians themselves in prayer. And then uh, others, it burnt bridges that needed to be burned in my life in, in, in moving forward uh, as a Christian. And I always know that God never allows his word to return void. He certainly doesn't allow the gospel to return void in anybody's life when we share it, no matter what the circumstances or, or the motivations are. But I am also glad to have uh, had this instruction that Paul gives us here enter into my personal evangelism as well. And then asking God to open doors to be able to share with these people in my life, in your life, that we have personal relationships with. And then to recognize the open door that he has given us. And then to pray for the boldness then to step through uh, that open door when it presents uh, itself to us. And the need for prayer related to that. I think we've all had situations in our life as Christians where uh, we have desired to share the gospel with somebody, the door opens, and we know from the Holy Spirit that he, this is it, here's your chance, and then we balk and we fumble away the opportunity and we know that we missed it. And the importance of boldness related to all of it as well. He said he wanted prayer in order to speak the mystery of Christ in verse 3. And the mystery of Christ speaks of the fact of, uh, of how it is both Jews and Gentiles equally were in need of salvation and are in need of salvation. And that God has chosen to save Jew and Gentile in the same identical way through faith in Christ. And that once we enter into the kingdom of God, whether Jew or Gentile, we enter into that relationship with God with the same standing, both the Jew and uh, the Gentile. Everyone is equal. And Paul said, this message is what landed me in prison uh, to begin with. And he's saying, I I'm not asking you to pray that I will stop sharing this message. I'm going to share the message of the mystery of Christ, how God wants to save anyone and everyone and will save anyone and everyone uh, and any time. And of course, this got him in trouble with the Jews because they viewed themselves as the spiritual experts and the Gentiles were uh, just Gentile dogs and destined for hell. 
And so to tell the Jews that they needed to get saved in the same way that a Gentile did was a great offense to them. And it was so great an offense to them that they uh, led kind of a rebellion against Paul. And it was the reason that he ultimately ended up imprisoned in Rome. And Paul says, I want you to pray, keep praying for me that I will keep sharing the gospel that has even put me in, in this hot water. And then interestingly in verse 4, he prayed, asked for prayer that he might make it manifest as he ought to speak. And the idea is uh, for them to pray that when he shared the gospel, it would be unmistakably clear that he, that he would make this. The gospel is the single most important thing any human being will hear in their entire life. And he said, would you pray for me that every time I share that gospel, it will be as clear as a bell to the person I'm sharing it uh, with, that I don't muddy it up, that I don't mess it up, or, or anything uh, like that. It's fascinating, interesting to me is that his concern is, would you pray that, uh, you, that uh, God would make the gospel more clever? Or that he would make it, you know, more powerful? Or that he would, that it would be more dynamic or exciting? He knows the gospel when it's being ministered by the Holy Spirit, it is powerful all by itself. And so today in the current ministry environment where there's so much concern about being clever and being dynamic and being powerful, that wasn't Paul's concern at all. His concern was about being clear and giving the Holy Spirit what he wanted to work with in people's lives. Now, while we should receive Paul's exhortation to us regarding prayer uh, as an exhortation here for our general prayer life, but, but Paul then immediately, as he talks about prayer there in verse 2, he immediately then directs the, uh, the subject of prayer that he's teaching on, he directs it uh, and ask for personal prayer in terms of sharing the gospel with the unsaved world. And I, I think that that's what, what he is referring to supremely in, in verse 2, instructing us concerning a place of prayer in our lives in engaging the unbelieving world around us. And engaging the unbelieving world around us as Christians, that it always begins with prayer that we pray for the salvation by name of our friends, of our family members, of our colleagues, our neighbors, the unsaved world, and that we do so continually and watchfully and with thanksgiving. And that like Paul, we pray for the Holy Spirit to provide us with an open door, an opportunity to share the gospel with them, then for the boldness to go through that door and then to make it uh, unmistakably clear to them. And so, very important, prayer is where our spiritual engagement with the world is to begin. Now, you notice in verse 5, Paul then calls on us second to walk in wisdom toward the lost and to redeem the time. 
To walk in wisdom, walks, uh, walks refers to our behavior, how we live our daily lives. The wisdom that's spoken of here does not refer to human wisdom. It refers to God's wisdom. And so Paul is saying and calling on us that our behavior in our daily lives will be marked by God's wisdom, by his word, that our lives would characterize the teaching and the commandments of the word of God, that we would live a life that's consistent with God's word. And so the world is not to see us continuing to live the same life that we lived uh, after uh, being a Christian that we lived before we became a Christian. And they're not to see that same uh, life. And further, it means living in such a way that our lives do not give the unsaved world an unfavorable impression of Christianity or to live our lives in such a way that would then make it hard for us to share the gospel with someone else. And we all know what that feels like, where we do something before in front of somebody that we have a relationship with, we want them to be saved, and then we say something, or we do something, or we even sin in front of them, and we realize that if God gave me the opportunity to share the gospel with them this moment, I have just marred it by what it is that I have just said and done here. And it is living a life that is consistent with the Word of God that keeps us in a place to be ready on the spot and, and bold in, in sharing the gospel with another person without any kind of a, a hesitation at, at all. Now remember the early church, these Christians, they were viewed with tremendous suspicion by the culture around them, by the Roman Empire. So they refused to worship any of Rome's gods. They refused to worship any of the gods of the Greeks. And then uniquely in the Roman Empire, they refused to burn the incense uh, to Caesar as God. And so they were kind of viewed distrustingly, oddly. Uh, they, they worship this strange God. They don't worship the gods that everybody else worships. And you know, they weren't born that incense. And so their, their uh, patriotism in terms of the Roman Empire was called into uh, question. So they had a lot of things working against them to now be able to impact that culture uh, with uh, the gospel. And uh, in order to dispel all of these suspicions and get people to the listen to the gospel, Paul said, first and foremost, it requires living a life that's above reproach, living a life that is like the one that's described in the Bible. And as Jesus said, and he put it, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Peter puts it wonderfully in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that is the unsaved, that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they did, and they do, that they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so we face the same obstacles in uh, a very pagan secular culture that we live in. 
There's a, the longer things go on, the less direct exposure people have with Christianity, having been raised around the Bible, raised in the church where the Bible is accurately taught. So all of their conceptions of Christianity are through uh, people who are disgruntled with Christianity or through the media or uh, uh, whatever, whatever it might be, and they have a negative view of Christianity. And, and then sometimes people have a negative view of Christianity because uh, certain sections of the body of Christ take on a political identity that is stronger than their spiritual identity. A church can do that. And then people begin to view Christianity and they can't quite figure out just what it is, but they don't like what they're seeing. And so we face the same obstacles today. And the solution is exactly the same to live a life before them that is above reproach and that will ultimately, in the power of the Holy Spirit, gain their respect and a willingness to one day listen to what it is that we have uh, to say. He tells us that we're to redeem the time, and that refers to making the most of every opportunity to share spiritual truth and to share the gospel. Redeeming the time is literally buy up the time. In other words, treat time as uh, priceless. Treat time as if you had to pay for it out of your own pocket. And if you had to pay for your own time, would I spend it differently? Probably I would. In, in some cases. And that's the challenge of what, what he's, he's saying here. And so live spiritually as if you had to buy the time that you spend. I don't think it does any of us any harm. It certainly doesn't do me any harm to be reminded of how valuable time is, how finite it is, how fleeting it is, what a vapor even a lifetime is. And to be reminded at the moment of death Every opportunity to influence spiritually, every opportunity to share the gospel will be gone. As someone uh, said after the, the, the first uh, service, we will have written our resume by that point. There will be no one saved to witness to in heaven. There will be no need for us to be the point man in being spiritually influential in heaven. All of these opportunities to do good for the glory of God in a messy environment are limited to this life. And then they're gone the moment that this life is, uh, is over. And so to be reminded of how valuable time is and probably... No audience in the entire uh, human history is this reminder more important than an audience of Christians somewhere, anywhere in the United States of America. And I won't bore you with the statistics of how much time the average American spends in front of a television set each day or in front of a computer, not at work, but for recreation, or in front of the screen on a telephone. But it's multiplied, multiplied, hours a day. And so the issue that Paul is reminding us about is that when we complain about not having enough time to do all of these things related to the kingdom of God, rarely is that so. 
Usually we have plenty of time, but too much time is being misdirected in, in our uh, lives. And I'll tell you, that stings a little bit for me, but it's a sting that I want to have happen within my life. And it's a call to reassess how we are spending time within our lives, given how valuable uh, it is. Now, third Paul, and we close with this, he instructs us concerning our speech towards the loss. He's spoken about what they're supposed to see in our lives. Now he talks about uh, speech there in verse 6. And he said, our speech is always to be with grace. Always to be with grace. And so uh, Paul, he doesn't tell us what we're to, he doesn't go on a tangent and say, okay, now here's what you need to share. He assumes we know the gospel. He assumes a biblical literacy that we know how to engage in a spiritual conversation with people after a while, after being Christian a while. His concern is how we present God's truth, His spiritual truths, and the gospel here. And he says, uh, and, and he tells us uh, that our words should always be marked by grace or unmerited favor, or we could say by winsomeness, or by speaking to people politely, speaking to people uh, with respect when we represent God in declaring his message uh, to people. The kind of thing that when a person would leave a conversation with us and they might think, you know, I just like that person. I, I, I'm not sure I believe what they believe, but I like them. I, I'll listen to them again. Or I wouldn't mind spending some time around a person like that. There aren't that many people speaking graciously to other people. And, and this, is, uh, this is the kind of impact that God wants our words to have. And, and he wants us to approach people there um, with, uh, with grace. Now, Jesus, of course, was loved by the common people for this very uh, point, uh, 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 characteristic of his life. I mean, he said hard things to people at times, but he always did it politely, and he always did it respectfully, and then, then he let uh, the, the power of it uh, then rest upon the person. The, uh, the Bible teaches that it's a gentle tongue that breaks a bone. Uh, something that's said gently as opposed to in anger or rage, is, uh, something that's said gently is as hard to ignore once we've left that conversation as, uh, as to ignore a broken bone within our body. And, and, and in other words, it's impossible to ignore. So Paul is saying that we're not to come across as we carry God's message as proud or arrogant or condescending or dismissive of anybody else's view, cutting them off when they begin to talk about something that's, you know, misguided or represents their beliefs and wedging in another verse or something like that. That's, that's not how God wants to be represented on, on things. And as Christians, we know the truth about a lot of things. We know the truth about salvation. We know the truth about everlasting life. We know the truth about all kinds 
of spiritual things that a non-Christian doesn't know. And the trick is to know more than another person on those issues, but not come across as arrogant or as condescending or as dismissive. Though some may, people may take it that way, no matter how we, we would approach them. And so our speech, he says, further is to be seasoned with salt. And salt was a preservative in those days. It, it, it arrested corruption. And our speech is to be something that introduces wholeness and health into people's lives. Nobody should leave a conversation with us worse off uh, than before the conversation uh, began. And so we're going to speak wholesome things into their lives. And in terms of the gospel and reaching the world, it means that when we share the truth of God and when we share the gospel, we recognize that no matter how gracious we are, it'll still sting for some people. And there's no way around that. And so there's going to be saltiness to this. But despite that fact, we're not to remove the salt of the fact that God has commandments, that we are all sinners, that we need to repent of sin, and that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of sin and to receive everlasting life, no matter what the reaction is. But here is this thing he talks about, this salt is to be the seasoning, grace is to be the tone, and then salt the seasoning. Not salt setting the tone, and then grace to be the more particular, rarer part of our interaction with people. And there's different kinds of people on, on both extremes related to that, and, and so it's a good word. And he says that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In other words, every conversation should be appropriate uh, to the person. And that's the fun of having spiritual conversations with people or sharing the gospel. They all come from a different life experience. They all come from have a different personality, different way of seeing things. Some of them are gruff and all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> and to look at it and then to just roll with wherever the conversation is going to go with them. And, the, and that conversation needs to be an individual one. And Paul says, don't be afraid to let that be an individual one. And so here as we look at this, this passage here this morning, as Paul is closing out this epistle, and for as much for our sakes as for the sake of the world, Paul encourages us as Christians to have a prayer life like his own, and that is to begin or to continue to pray for the salvation of our family members, our friends, our neighbors, people that we want to have saved, and to do so by name. Because the fact of the matter is, if we don't have enough concern for their souls to pray for them, then it is very highly unlikely that we will ever share the gospel with them or their need for salvation. Paul tells us for our own sake to pray for the Holy Spirit to open a door to share the gospel with them ourselves so that we live life expectant that God is going to open up an opportunity to speak to them spiritually and then we'll recognize it when it happens. 
And then third, to pray for the boldness to walk through the door when the opportunity presents. And then fourth, to live a life that will always allow us to share the gospel with the person we're longing uh, to do so without any hesitation. And then fifth, to share the gospel in God's Word in conversation with others with the same humility and the same grace that marked Jesus' life. And so there. We stop with that. And this morning, very easy in a sermon like this, and no one's more aware of it than I am, that we are talking about the two most neglected areas in the life of the average Christian. Prayer and sharing our faith. And the easy thing to do is to sit through a sermon like this, a teaching like this, and say, I know all of that. I've heard it a hundred times in my Christian life. But that's not the question. That's not what Paul is aiming at in having written this. The question is, is does this mark my Christian life? Or, in the privacy of our own heart, and I'll speak to myself as well, how many more days or weeks or months or years am I willing to not have an influence spiritually in the world that I'm living in? Or to never share the gospel with anyone else? Or to never pray consistently for all of the people that I want to be saved? And so he's very, very practical here on how to start. And how it starts is to put a prayer list together concerning all of our loved ones that we want to have saved and to begin to pray for their salvation. And then the progression will take hold. I just don't want this to be what we can be tempted to let it be in just one more time that we hear the same thing and nothing changes in our lives. One day we are going to a place where the opportunity, the incredible privilege of carrying this message into a messy, needy world that where there are still people that want to hear the gospel like we did, it will be gone, it will be lost. This is the opportunity and the time that we have. And so to look at this and say, not to forget what Paul is saying here before we get to the car, but that it really makes a change. And to ask God, God, I want this change to occur finally in my life. No other sermon or teaching or looking at a passage has produced that change yet, but today I want that to happen. And then God will meet us in that place. And He will make all of this a reality within our lives. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Mm-hmm. Father, we pray that where this passage in Your Word affirms and reinforces what is already at practice within our lives, that 
that would fully do that work in our life and in our relationship with you and in our relationship with the world. And then, Lord, where we are far too much like Corinth, gone inward and in all kinds of different things and lost sight of the world and then all the problems that come from that. And Lord, where we, this passage is a convicting passage or where this passage is one that exposes us, not before other people, but it exposes us and our relationship with you before you, that you would bring a conviction in our lives and that you would give us a power and a determination to change, Lord, what maybe has never changed in our lives, where these subjects have always been something to be listened to but never obeyed, and that today, Lord, in some of our lives, mine included, that that would change. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit associated with these five verses this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.